So with that, we're going to continue on in our new series called Encounters with Jesus. Um, thank you for those of, of you who have submitted online. I think there's been one. Uh, their encounter with Jesus, we're going to share those. We do have a couple, a couple sharing at the end uh, of the message, their encounter with Jesus. Thank you for those who have texted me or emailed me or told me in person and um, Hopefully, you've become more aware that you're not looking for an encounter with Jesus. You're just paying attention and seeing that there's an encounter with Jesus. So I invite you to do that. So again, I'm going to press you a little bit, fill these out, because I looked in the offering boxes, which I'm not supposed to do, but I did anyways, not for the money to shake out or anything, but I looked and no one turned these in and pretty please do it. I mean, and really sign if we can share it or not. Um, if you don't, I won't assume that I can. So please do that. Email. Um, Ashley did a great job of setting it up on the website. You just click on it and fill it out. Someone wrote a pretty good couple of paragraphs, and it was great, and I'm waiting to share that one. And, um, but please do it. So everyone, there's, there, there's even some in the lobby so if you forget to grab them, leave them. I appreciated the one person who turned it into an airplane. That was great. But you didn't write your encounter, so that doesn't count. So, but really, I, uh, I, I can't stress this enough. It, it's, it's for your good, not for mine. I'm recording my encounters. And I get to share them just about every Sunday with you. You get to hear me. But we want to hear from you. So with that, we're going to continue on in our series, and we are going to look at the lady at the well from John 4. So if you are able to stand for the reading of God's word, please do so and turn to John 4. We're going to read 42 verses, and it's a wonderful and probably familiar story, and let's read it. And it reads... Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judah and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from a long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at that time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jesus refused to have anything to do with the Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me. And I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said. And this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and the animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. 
you don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it is here on Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worship? Jesus replied, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it is no longer matter where you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed, it is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Just then the disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replied, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. Did someone bring him food while we were gone, the disciples asked each other. Then Jesus explained, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest, but I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. You know the saying, one plants and another harvests, and it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others had already done the work, and now you will get to gather the harvest. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. When they came to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray. God, thank you for this opportunity to come and gather together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit that guides us and illuminates the scripture for our understanding. Thank you for our encounters with you each and every day. Will you help us become more aware of them, Lord? We also help us not take them for granted. Let us celebrate what you've done in the past. Be thankful for what you're doing now and have hope for what you will do later. So we thank you again for this time. Pray that you prepare our hearts to receive your word. Whatever you want me to say, I say. Whatever you don't, I don't. We thank you and we love you in Christ's name. Amen. You may have a seat. So how is your encounters with Jesus going? Good. Did anyone forget about it? Some people giggled, that means yes. Um, is anyone frustrated by it? It could be frustrating too, especially sometimes you look so hard and you don't see it. That happens to me quite a bit. Especially knowing that I'm going to talk on the following Sunday after talking about encounters. And I'm like, all right, Jesus, show me something good. <clears throat> and it's a boring 
Monday. Anyone had an encounter that um, was a repetitive, something that has been happening over and over again, week after week, day after day, maybe month after month, and then you perhaps realize, oh, this is actually an encounter. I actually have an encounter every day at this time, but I've missed it. Or every month at this certain time, I do this, or whatever it is. That's really what we see here, this encounter that this Samaritan woman has with Jesus is every day at noontime, she shows up. And she has an encounter, and she realizes it for the first time. And granted, yes, this is her first encounter with Jesus, but I was considering how many things that I just do on repeat, on regular, and that I hope to come to appreciate that it's actually an encounter with Christ. I guess really the question I'm asking you is, how is your attention to the encounters with Christ? And again, I mention it up front. You can fill them out online. You can fill out your cards. You can go on Instagram and send Ashley a direct message or email me, email somebody, write it down. Because um, what I've, I've noticed this week in particular, and, and of course I've been working on this for a while now, but this week when, when I'm writing it down, and I usually save my notes on my phone so I can recall them whenever I want on any device that I want, um, is that taking time to record them doesn't only allow me to appreciate what Christ is doing, the encounter, but it also allows me to pay attention specifically to the encounter to know that I'm going to share it. Because I don't know about you, but a lot of times when there's things that I want to remember, I'll say just for me, I do the cliff note version because I know when I tell the story again, I'll remember it. Just like my testimony of coming to Christ. I don't need to read the notes. I know what happened. But, but some of the other things, the other encounters that, that I experience with Christ, if I know I'm going to share it with someone, I clean it up. Not to make the story better, to, but to make sure that I don't skip the details. Now, if you've ever had a conversation with me at all, including up here, sometimes I get a little excited when I talk and I start in the middle of a story and assume You've been there the whole time. My dear wife, just about every time I talk to her, has to remind me, you know, I wasn't there. Can you start from the beginning? Oh, yeah. But this has helped me slow down and fill out the details, especially for someone who relies on systems over being organized. But that's for another thing. So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at another encounter in Scripture with Jesus, and perhaps a very famous one, I would assume it's, I don't know if in the top 25 stories, it's probably there as an adult that you've read, uh, the very famous woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. And in this text, there's actually three different people or people group that we're going to look at their encounter with Jesus, either directly with Jesus, which in this case, all three people or people groups have an encounter with Jesus. And see the response. If you remember last week, we did that with the blind man, but we had five groups of people. We had the blind man, we had the Pharisees, we had his neighbor, we had his uh, parents, and then we had the disciples, and we were considering that. So this morning, there's really only three people groups, the woman, the disciples, and the Samaritans at large. And of course, the story is going to 
primarily focus on the woman and the disciples a little bit and the Samaritans a little bit. But what I find so interesting is I like all of the fun facts about a story in the Bible, and you may have already known this, but this is the longest recorded conversation Jesus has with someone in the Bible. It's the longest conversation recorded. And it's with this lady at the well, which is very interesting because there's so many reasons why he shouldn't have had this conversation, and we'll talk about that. And what I also find interesting is we never find out her name, and I really want to know why, what her name is. I can't tell you why, I just don't like not knowing things. But if the Lord, since the Lord has decided we don't get to know her name, that's not important. But she is important. So what this encounter this week I'm hoping to bring out is the use of questions. Since this is the longest conversation Jesus has had with someone that's recorded, what we'll see is the back and forth of questions. If I was going to have a sub-subtitle, sub, yeah, sub-subtitle of this, I would title it, Why Questions Can Be More Important Than Answers. Why Questions Can Be More Important Than Answers. And not only is this the longest conversation recorded, it is the longest back and forth with so many questions. And in the Gospels, if I counted correctly, Jesus is asked a question 183 times. Now, I eliminated, and then I also proof text and made sure that I'm not a heretic as much as possible, but I, I eliminated the repeated questions that show up in multiple Gospels. If the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, had recorded the same exact conversation I removed them and I confirmed them. But to my count, there's 183 questions that Jesus is asked in the Gospels. And he only answers three of those questions directly. So imagine that. You ask Jesus 183 questions, and he only gives you it straight, if you will, three times. There are two of those questions, not of the three, but there are two additional questions that he does not give any answer at all. Can you guess what two? The two that were prophesied that he would not answer right before his crucifixion with Pilate who asked him. And there's... Tons of reasons why. People argue exactly why. The first and, and chief one is because it was prophesied that he would stand before, the sheep would, would stand before the shears and not say a word, which he did. But also, it's also to prove that the reason why Jesus was crucified was not because he wasn't a very good lawyer. He couldn't argue himself out of his crucifixion. He said nothing. Two times. So, out of the 183 questions, two of the questions he doesn't answer. Three are the only ones he responds to directly. And uh, I have a neat little chart here, I think. Because I'm sure you want to know what those three questions are that he answered directly, right? So, <clears throat> the first one is from John 18:37. So, are you the king, said Pilate? Yes, I am the king. I was born for this. That's pretty clear, yes. The second one is from Luke 11.1. 1. 
When his disciples says, says to him, Lord, teach us how to pray, just as John taught his disciples, he said to them, this is how you are to pray, and he taught them our Father. That's a direct answer. The third one comes from Matthew 22, verse 36 and 37. Did this concert him? One of the Pharisees put to him a question. Master, which is the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus said, you must love your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and with all of your soul. And the second is like it. So those are the only three times that Jesus answers the question directly. But now as we consider this, one other thing to note, just for fun, if you ever go on Jeopardy and it's Bible questions, Jesus actually asks, people 307 questions of which is usually a response to the question so if he doesn't answers if he does not answer the questions directly which he only does three times he either asks a question back or he tells a parable that's about all that he does so there's value in questions and what we're going to see is we're going to see this Samaritan woman ask a question after question after question and we're going to pay close attention to the encounter she has with the way that Jesus answers her questions and we'll also if you were if you noticed going through the disciples have a question but they never ask them because they're too scared or too worried what will he think So let's consider this so let's go back through this John 4, verse 1, it says, Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing, making more disciples than John, though Jesus himself didn't baptize them. His disciples did, so he left Judah and returned to Galilee. So the question is, is why didn't Jesus baptize people? A lot of people argue over this, if he really did, if he didn't. There's some kind of hinting that he may or may not have, but the best answer that I found that I agree with is, can you imagine if you were the one or five, six, seventh person that got baptized with Jesus? Wouldn't you think your baptism was way cooler than everybody else's? I would. If I got baptized by Jesus, I would name drop that every time I talked to you. <laughs> Don't pretend you wouldn't either. Because you would say, well, I was baptized by my dad or my pastor. I said, I was baptized by Jesus, so now what? I'm pretty sure that Jesus didn't want that to be an issue of separation or division. Specifically that. So that's why there's the assumption, and it's very clear that Jesus, once his disciples started baptizing, and just as it says, once he started getting more notoriety than John, the baptizer, that's when people really started not liking him. So he was moving on, and then as we look in verse 4, it says, he had to go through Samaria. He had to. That Greek word that John uses is, it was necessary. And granted, if you look at a map, it is necessary. The shortest route was to go to Samaria. But it was also necessary because Jesus knew he was going to have an encounter with the Samaritan woman. Just like it was important for Philip to go after Pentecost to go and share the Holy Spirit with the Samaritans. Had to. It was necessary for him to do it. Now, the issue here is Samaria was not a place any Jew wanted to go. It was a despised place. Any self-respecting Jewish person never went through the Samaritans. 
and to Samaria because they didn't want anything to do with the Samaritans. The reason why is they called them half-breeds. And they were half-breeds for multiple reasons. One is because they were racially mixed. They were also their religious Judaism was also a mixture of stuff. Because the reason why is if you remember when Nebuchadnezzar came and took over Judah, the Assyrians already wiped out Israel because this is after the Jewish people separated into two groups. When Nebuchadnezzar came and he conquered Judah, he took the Jewish people into captivity, but he only took the smartest and the best looking. If you read through Daniel, you'll, you'll notice that they, when they talk about Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are described as the finest or the noblest or the wealthy or the good-looking. Nebuchadnezzar didn't want anything to do with the down-and-outers. So he left them there. And he, there wasn't a ton of them there. He just left them there. In order for this group to survive and to continue to populate, they married other people. Um, other people that were around. A lot of them were Assyrians. A lot of them were Babylonians. A lot of them were just outsiders. So when the Jewish people came back from captivity, and we went through that for several months with Nehemiah and Ezra, when they came back from captivity, they were so upset with the Samaritans, and they would say, how dare you do that? Why didn't you stay strong? We stayed so strong. We're so much better than you. And then the Samaritan's argument was, how dare you? You didn't put up a fight. We did. We stayed on Mount Gazim. Even today, there's about 850 Samaritans left. And um, I spent probably way too much time watching this investigation behind the modern-day Samaritans. It's pretty good. I would warn you, it's, it's rated R-ish because... The, the Samaritan people still sacrifice goats and they show it because they never lost their temple. That's the other argument that the Samaritans have. Well, you allowed your temple to get destroyed twice. We still have ours. So they still sacrifice goats, lambs, birds to atone for their sin. But anyways, in, in this documentary about the Samaritan people, it says that there's only about 850 Samaritans left at the time, there was probably, at their height, there was about a million. So there are only 850 left. And there's three men to every one Samaritan woman, which is bad odds. So what they're currently doing is the Samaritan men are looking for women who want to escape their country and are willing to become Samaritan. Because their thought is, we're half-breeds anyways, what does it matter as long as they convert? Can you guess the two most common countries that women are willing to go and become Samaritan? Ukraine and Russia. And I don't have to tell you there's a war going on or exactly whatever that conflict is labeled today, but the women are willing to convert over. They're willing to leave everything because they feel that in the middle of Israel in a Palestinian-ruled area in Samaria, they would be a lot safer. So all that to say is the Jewish people hated the Samarians because they called them a sellout. 
And the Samaritans weren't real big fans because they got picked on and they felt like they are doing it right. And even in the conversation, the Samaritan woman asked all these questions because of her faith, because she's Samaritan. So when the woman gets to the well, Jesus is now engaging this woman. And that is why it is so uncommon for so many so many reasons. One of the regular prayers that Jewish rabbi men would pray is this, God, and I'm putting it in English, God, thank you that I am Jewish. Thank you that I am a man. Thank you that I am not a woman. Thank you that I am not a Gentile. What a prayer. Some would go on and continue and thank you that I am not a very nice word, Samaritan. So do you see the hatred there? So as shocked as everyone is that Jesus is sitting there with this woman, people should equally be shocked that a Samaritan woman is sitting with a Jewish man. It just shouldn't have worked. Have you noticed that your encounter with Jesus just shouldn't work? It just shouldn't line up. It just doesn't make sense. If you were to write out your story, this is not exactly all of these encounters with Jesus. doesn't seem that they should line up, but God, he shows up. And that's what we're going to see. So let's continue on. So he goes in, <clears throat> excuse me, he goes through Samaria on the way. Eventually he comes to the Samaritan village of Sakard, which is just right below the mountain, near the field of Jacob that gave to his son Joseph. And there's a well there. You can go visit there depending on the time. In the season, the well is still there. Um, about noontime, soon a, verse 7, soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. So let's stop there. So there's a lot of things about this particular Samaritan woman. So first of all, Jesus, a Jewish man, should not have been talking first to a woman or a Samaritan. Also, if, since he is a rabbi... Rabbis were not even allowed to talk to their own wives in public. Don't giggle too much about that. Or his daughters, or any women at all. He would avoid them. When we were in Israel, you would see that if a, if a rabbi was dressed in his clothes for prayer, he would make no contact, no eye contact, no conversation with any women at all. Still to this day. Secondly, since this woman, the Samaritan woman, was drawing water at noontime, about the hottest part of the day, that also means she was an outcast among the other Samaritan women. Typically, the women who came to draw the water would come before the sun came up because it was the coolest part of the day. Since she had to come at noon, the hottest part of the day, that means she wasn't welcome even among her own people. And the reason why is, as Jesus points out, how many times she was married. Both the Jewish law and the Samaritan law says that you can only get married three times. After that, you're doing something wrong and you can't get married. Regardless if you had biblical grounds to get divorced or your husband um, died or if your husband's brother married you because he died, three times and you're out. Men that you can get married as many times as you want because, you know, you're a man. But the women, so she had been married multiple times. So she was an outcast within the outcast within the outcast, which is very interesting. The lowest of lows. Later on in the series, we'll talk about Nicodemus, 
the chapter before, and he was the highest of highs. So Jesus comes for both, the lowest of lows and the highest of highs. Again, at the foot of the cross, the field is level. But as we consider this, let's look at the conversation. Verse 7 again. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw, and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. Jesus says, please give me a drink. He was alone at this time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. Now, this village here was a 50-50 village, Sakar. It was mostly Samaritan, but it was a trade post. That's the only reason why the disciples would have went in there to go. They wouldn't have not gone in deep into the town because they wanted nothing with the Samaritans. He was alone. Verse 9, the woman was surprised for Jesus refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? So that's a question. Remember if I was going to subtitle this and I called it why questions can be more important than answers. So she asked, why are you asking me for a drink? Now, this may just seem like an obvious question. Why wouldn't you ask? But if you consider this, have you ever been hurt by someone or a group of someone's or a family or a group of friends? Have you ever been hurt by them or your family's been hurt with them and you wanted nothing to do with them? Did you avoid them? Did you not talk to them? Yes, I have at least. Which, as I consider this more and more, and, and I'm having more and more of these conversations with people, there's two, two guys in my life in particular that I grew up with, in the church with, and they want nothing to do with Jesus or the church. And both of them in various ways says, in some contexts, the church has burnt me. The church has done me wrong. Or this pastor did this. Or Whatever. But these two guys, both of them say that the church burned them, and they tell me the story, and yeah, that sounds pretty awful. All of this experience that the Samaritan woman suggests that she should have not listened to Jesus, she should have solemn got up and left. And again, these two guys in particular, when I have a conversation with them, their experience suggests they should have nothing to do with Christ or nothing to do with the church. So here's my reply, and I was sharing this last Sunday with someone. I asked them, I understand what your dad did. I understand what that pastor did. I understand what that church did. And if indeed that's what happened, and I believe you because you have no reason to lie to me, that was awful. But my question still is the same. What does that have to do with Jesus? I understand the church. I understand they took all your money, one guy said. I, uh, they kicked you out because of this and on and on and on. And I don't want to share too much because I invited them to watch this morning. But I understand that you've been hurt before. But what exactly has Jesus done for you not to believe in him? And it usually circles back to what the church has done, what someone has done, what I've done, what you've done, but not quite what Jesus has done to them. And granted, there, there are things that people have said to me in the past, but if, if people end up telling me exactly what Jesus has done to them, it's easier for me to work through Scripture to have that conversation about that. But if, if they're stuck on, which some of us even here this morning 
are stuck on. What is it that Jesus has done? Now, granted, I understand, and I'm not discrediting the church. I'm a pastor for crying out loud. I love the church. I love his bride. I'm part of his bride. But church is messy. You're messy. If you didn't know, you're gross. So am I. And that's why we all need Christ. That's why we need to come together. We all have gifts and abilities to serve one another, but we are encouraged by one another. But even with that, what has Christ done? What exactly did Jesus do to you or didn't do for you that you're blaming him for? And so far, they have not answered that question, and I'm not picking on them, but what is it about Christ? So when you are in the deep middle of your apologetics with someone, and they blame the church or Christian community about why they no longer come to church or follow Christ or believe in Christ, ask them, but what is it that Christ has done? Not as an attack. Because whatever it is, this Samaritan woman, instead of getting up and running away, she made her statement, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Correct. And then she says, why are you asking me for a drink? Now, the inflection is just a neutral inflection in the original language, so she's genuinely asking that question. She's, so, she's probably so surprised at the shock. And then Jesus replied, well, you know, you've had a lot of husbands, and I'm here to correct you. No, he didn't say that. I am the Messiah. You should worship me. He doesn't say that. He doesn't exactly answer the question, so you can add this to the list of all the times he doesn't answer the question directly. Jesus replied, if only you knew the gift has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Again, he doesn't attack her. I think it's easy for Christians to attack people because we know the truth. And for good or bad, we desperately want to, people to know the truth, and sometimes we get a little too excited. Also, for some of us, we get too shy and we never approach the truth. But Jesus says, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you this living water. And then her question, but sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket. Her statement, she said, and this well is very deep. Where, her next question, where would you get this living water? Very practical, very practical. Okay, I, I hear you, but how are you going to get the water? Very practical. How are you actually going to fix this? How, how will you get this water? You don't, you don't have a rope or a bucket and this well is very deep. And actually, if you, if you want to get a little nerdy, they actually, if you were traveling, you didn't carry a bucket. You carried a purse, a leather pouch, if you will. You would sometimes dump out your coins and use that to lower down to get your water and then put your coins back in. He had none of that. And of course, he didn't have the coin purse. He never held on to it anyways. But he also sent the disciples into town to go buy some food. But she asks a very practical question. Where would you get this living water? And besides, verse 12, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his, than he and his sons and his animals, en, animals enjoyed? So th- here's my 
actual thing that I have, and you're telling me there's something better, which is a whole nother sermonette on the side. Sometimes I think that we miss our encounter with Christ because we're so stuck on our routine or what we actually have that we think that God cannot do something beyond what we physically can see. I mentioned earlier that since I am not overly organized, I rely on routine quite a bit. I'm a copy and paste. I was sharing in my small group, and I get the great privilege of being the junior high boys, I guess they're called middle school boys, middle school boys leader on Wednesday night. It's a hoot. I have to say that because my son's in it. No, I'm just kidding. And so is Trevor. There, let me just, let me just name drop people. And uh, what, as we are discussing, they're smart kids, smart men. As we're considering this, as, as, as we're talking about the, the practical aspect of the thing, they ask such great questions. And, and, and one of the questions is, is, how do you see beyond what you see? And, 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 and I was talking and I was sharing with them that, again, I'm not organized, but I rely on routine. And my routine is I read scripture almost every single day at the same time like a robot. But sometimes I have to be reminded to do things out of my routine so my routine isn't something that I worship, that I rely on, that I rely on God. And that's hard for someone who's not super organized. And if you want to know, after I drop off the kids at school, I begin to listen to scripture on my way here. And then when I get here, I reread it, just so you know. So that's between 8 and 8.15, if you want to know, when I read scripture now the first time. So this week, as I was preparing for this, thinking that do I treat my schedule that I put together, my routine, as the actual well, as the actual practical thing, or do I rely on Jesus? So I didn't read scripture until 9.15, and it freaked me out. So for that first whole hour, I was like, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. Not quite that bad, but pretty close. For those of you who follow a routine probably understand those who are more organized probably can fit it in better. But really what, what, I, what I was really working on this week was really this question, and it, and it all became, came from this. And do you think, not so much that the greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well, how can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals? And it's really this lady only saw the well, the thing that she was comfortable with, her routine at coming every day at noon to get water. She knew without fail it was going to be there. And I was just wondering, do I know without fail that Jesus will always be there? Am I, am I willing to put aside what I'm comfortable with to trust in him? And you know what? I did read my Bible at 9.15. But she was asking these questions. And how can you offer better? And then Jesus' reply in verse 13. Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring with them, within them, giving them eternal life. He doesn't answer it directly. He takes the physical and talks about the spiritual. The spiritual is always more important than the physical. So he takes that and, and he points to him being the Messiah without him being the Messiah. So again, verse 15, please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. That makes sense. I'd want it too. 
Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. What she saw initially was he was going to replace this well. He was going to make life easier for her. She wasn't going to have to come out at noontime to get water anymore. She was just going to have her own camel pack of water. I don't know what she was thinking, but all she knew is she wouldn't have to come here anymore. He was going to replace the physical need. That's how she took it. Please, sir. Notice again, I circled in my, in my notes here, sir. It's the same word that the blind man used that we talked about last time, sir. It's, it's of respect, but not lordship, but we'll see how that will change. Please, sir, give me this water. And then his reply, go and get your husband. Dang. And then she's honest. I don't have a husband. She's honest, but she's not honest, but she is honest. She starts to tell the truth. I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with. You certainly spoke the truth. If I was her, in my mind, I would have said, well, creeper? Like, how do you know? And what about the water? Do I still get the water? <laughs> Honestly, do, do I? Do I get... Please? I think we treat our sin that way a little bit. For those of us who are followers in Christ and think that we should know better than our sin, which we should, but we're still sinners. And sometimes we think, I kind of don't want to deal with my sin, but I still want God's blessing. I'll deal with it later. See, our, the more that we become aware of our encounters with Jesus, yes, we become more aware of our sin in our life, but also what Jesus really wants us to do is allow him to work in that sin. Because he doesn't want us to stay there. And really, what we're seeing here is he wants to deal with it all. All of it. So she says, I don't, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right. And he goes through that. And you notice this, this is not the first thing. This is the fourth thing that he says to her. He doesn't beat her up right away. And then her reply, sir, same word, except with more of a meaning. She said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place to worship while we Samaritans claim it is here on Mount Gazim? Gerizim, where our ancestors worship. Now, there's much debate if she avoided her sin here, but I don't think she does. And the reason why I don't think that she avoids the sin is because she says, you must be a prophet. So she's starting off saying, okay, well, if you know so much about me and you're not a creeper, I don't know what the word is in Hebrew for that, but, but you know about me. You must be from God. And, and since I have you right here, I have some questions that I really need to work out. Because my entire life growing up, I've heard the Jews and the Samaritans argue about who's a better follower of God. And I really want to know, if you're a prophet, then you can answer this. Granted, you caught me. I'm a sinful woman. 
yes, but please tell me I'm earnestly trying to figure out who God is. I'm assuming here that if Jesus would have started off by beating her up over her sin, that she would have never sat around to ask the important questions. I know in my experience, when I have been overly aggressive to point out people's sin, it takes a long time to rebuild that bridge. Now, the closer I am with someone, the quicker I am in to point it out. But a stranger, I never... Maybe it works for you, but it's never worked for me. If I start shooting, I get fired back at. I'm not saying we don't need to avoid the sin. We, we, we need to handle the sin head on. But what, what, what it is here is he's putting her into a place when she is soft enough to listen to what he says. So she asks these questions. She's asking, well, who's getting it right? And I think that if, if Jesus would have said, oh, we Jews are right and it's only us and you need to become a Jew, I think she would have said, all right, I'm Jewish. But look at his reply, verse 21. Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter where you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship. Well, we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jewish, through the Jews. And here's the important part, verse 23. But the time is coming indeed, it is here now, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And the only way to be able to worship the Father in spirit and the truth is for Jesus to die, to, for atonement of our sins, to die, to rise again, and then to ascend so the Holy Spirit can come. The only way we can worship the Father is in the Spirit and in truth, and the only way we have this truth is if we put our trust and belief in Christ, and then we're filled with the Holy Spirit. And he goes on, he says, the Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. He's not looking for those who are perfectly Jewish, is what he's saying. He's not looking for those who are perfectly Samaritan. He's not looking at those who are perfectly Christian. He's only looking for those who are honest, who have a relationship with Christ. Verse 24, for God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in the spirit. So a lot is taking place, and this conversation is going on. And again, you remember, this is the longest conversation. It makes sense that Jesus is taking the time to disarm her and her prejudice, because she has a ton of them, to also let her know that he's a safe person to talk to, and he's very honest and deals with the sin, but he's very honest and lets her know that he is there to deal with it. And then verse 25, the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. So she's still a bit confused because she still thinks he's a prophet. So she's understanding this, but she says, I can't wait until the Messiah, because what you're saying will make sense, and then he'll explain it to him. And then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Now, if you're keeping track, Jesus eight times, well, seven times, makes the I am statements the same I am statements I mentioned last week that God made when he spoke to Moses, I am. This is a sub I am statement, if you will. This is why this is considered number eight sub, because it's not the same wording as I am, even though it says I am. It's a bit confusing because English is weird. 
But he is directly saying, I am the Messiah. All the other I am statements, I am the light of the world, I am the bread, I am the, get, the shepherd, I am the gate. It's all pointing to the Messiah. And this is saying, I am the Messiah. I am God. And right when he makes his statements, verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask. So let's transition. We've, we've talked about the Samaritan woman. We'll come back to her encounter. But let's talk about the brief encounter the disciples have with Jesus. So they come back, and they were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask. And the question that they did not have the nerve to ask, as in 27, says, what do you want with her, or why are you talking to her? They were shocked, number one, because... Jesus was not doing what they thought he should do. Has Jesus ever done something that you thought he shouldn't do? I have. It's a good thing I'm not God, let me tell you that. I would make an awful God. The grace and mercy that God has shown me, I don't necessarily ever always share with other people. But the disciples are so shocked because Jesus is not doing what society tells them he should do. Because if they're honest, they would say, "Uh, Jesus, you're a Jewish man, you're a rabbi, you're breaking seven out of all of our rules. Please explain yourself. So their encounter is they come back and find Jesus not doing what they think he should do. The obvious and most immediate takeaway for me is if I ever, while I'm reading through Scripture or experiencing Christ's love, if I ever come, especially through Scripture, and I find a a section in the Bible where I just think, I wouldn't do it that way, or I find myself asking, Jesus, why did you do that? The answer must always begin with, I am the wrong one, not Jesus. Because if I start to manipulate or consider or try to explain away truth to make it more palpable for me to digest in order to share with other people, then I'm changing the word of God. And we've seen enough of that throughout history. Just change it a little bit because society says Jesus is mean. Well, we're so concerned what, that Jesus' PR is so bad. Jesus can take care of his own public relationship. You just be honest. So when you're going through scripture and there's a, there's a tough passage for you or you're afraid that, man, if my non-believing friends read this, whew, this is going to be a death blow to them. If you find yourself doing that, I encourage you to highlight that, make that an encounter and talk about it with someone. Because the reality is, is, is it, this one little scripture is just part of the whole story, so it has to unfold. And don't ever be like the disciples who never asked the question. I know I've said the, I know I've said this before, but don't be afraid to ask Jesus the hard questions. If it's in your head, he already knows it, by the way. But I do wonder if in our walks with the Lord, if we ever feel shame or fearful in asking Jesus questions. Especially for those of us who have walked with the Lord for a long time and we're afraid that we should already know what we're asking. Again, if, if the disciples were honest, they would have asked, Jesus, you do things differently, obviously. 
Um, and you actually do things the way that we were taught not to do. Why is it? Or modernize it. God, I've grown up in a church or I'm in a church or I'm in a Bible study where this has been the way. But as I read through your word, I realize that probably doesn't line up with what, why is that? What's going on? Or they could have just been completely honest and said, Jesus, that lady is so gross. How can you possibly be around her? Or if you don't find her gross, Jesus, what is it in her that you do see. see. See, there's all these questions, there's all these different approaches that sometimes we're just afraid to ask. Again, another way that I wrote, Lord, how is it that you are able to do things and not worry about what other people think? The people who knew Jesus the most, that spent the most time with him, were sometimes the guys who asked the least amount of questions. I think there's a lot of reasons. They just assumed they'd find out. They were too embarrassed. They argued. They thought they knew better. And the list goes on and on. Sometimes I wonder if that's true. The people who know the most about Jesus, do we ask the question? Do we ask him questions? Have you ever been in a Bible study where you had a question, but you felt like you should have already know the answer and what will people think? And I'm not better than anybody, but can you imagine being a pastor and saying, I have a question, but people expect me to know the answer. I have loads of questions, if you want to know. But I do ask, because the, the, the neat thing about Christ is he is able to ask your questions, even if you ask them in a mean way. I think sometimes we treat him like this terrible, awful man, God, teddy bear thing, that if we upset him by asking him questions that he's going to smite us or something. I'm not saying you have to accuse him of anything. or He can handle that. He can handle you being upset. He can handle you in your uncertainty. He can handle you trying to connect the Old Testament to the New Testament. It doesn't make sense. He can handle why one church does one thing one way and another does another. He can handle those questions. So ask him. So the biggest takeaway, at least for the encounter with the disciples, is, is more of a negative one. They have these questions. They don't ask them because they're afraid. We don't know why. It's all speculation. I'm just totally speculating. But there's Jesus is right there, and they could have asked him. So in verse 28, it says, The woman left her jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone. It's significant that she left the, her jar there. Remember what she told Jesus when he got there and asked for water? How can you get water if you don't have a rope or a jar? That jar that she held on to was what was sustaining her life, and now Jesus said that he is the living water, so she left behind what used to be her God. That's what our encounters with Jesus does. The more and more that we hang out with Christ, the more and more that we write down and record and think about our encounters, the more and more we'll realize what actually is God to us in our life. But she left the most important, precious thing to her. And what did she go and do with her encounter? She ran to the village telling everyone. 
And what she says, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done, I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? And that's not a question because she's uncertain. It's a question for them to be interested. It, you know what's great? Jesus spent all these times asking her questions to answer her questions, so she invites them with a question. Isn't that brilliant? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Now, I'm going to take great liberty in imagining the conversation, and, and I'm not the only one to do it. I, I read Alistair Begg's account, or how he wrote the encounter, and, and I kind of agree with it. But my own interpretation is I would imagine as she ran into the village, everyone said, oh, there's this lady again. And they would have noticed her because they probably all gossip about her. And then they probably would have noticed that she didn't have her jar. They would have noticed she was running. And then to hear her say, come and see a man. Oh, another man. Great. What number is he? I mean, honestly, don't you already have a boyfriend? And then she says, he told me everything I ever did. And then some of the people probably said, I can tell you everything he did. And then she says, could he possibly be the Messiah? Everyone wants a Messiah. So they're like, all right. Something's different this time about her. Let's go check it out. So as she's running and doing this, verse 31 says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus. They never asked the question, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replied, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. Then verse 33, very disciple-like. Did someone bring him food while we were gone? Did someone run the Taco Bell? Did they go through drive through They totally missed the point. And then Jesus gives his answer. Verse 34, he explains, My nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvesting, but I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages and the fruit, Excuse me, and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. You know the saying, one plants and another harvests, and it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others have already done the work, and now you will get to gather the harvest. He was talking both in the now and the later. He was talking about these Samaritans you wanted nothing about, but the seed was already planted here. Now we're going to stay here for two days and you get to reap the harvest. And the harvest you hated, by the way. The people you wanted nothing to do with are going to come to him, to Christ. You want nothing to do with them. So in, in ministry and in just your walk with Christ, everyone wants, I hope everyone wants to lead someone to Christ at least once. Sometimes you are simply the planter. But sometimes you're the harvester. And I know for me personally, the people who I have led to Christ, I don't know if I've ever led someone to Christ that I was the planter. I don't think I ever was. I'm certain I haven't been. I have simply rode on the coattails of those who have been faithful and I just happen to be the person that gets to hear their testimony of when they accepted Christ. Hmm. What an encounter. And then many Samaritans, verse 39, 
from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed there for two days, long enough for many more to hear the message and believe. And then they said to the woman, now we believe not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the savior of the world. In the village that it just appeared they were passing through, but Christ had an encounter waiting for him. So as we consider this and consider our encounters, we see that there's so much there. The encounters, just briefly, of the Samaritan village, they believe because one woman had an encounter and she was willing to share. And what she shared was, he told me all of my sin. He told me who I am, but who he is. So three different encounters. The big one, obviously, with the Samaritan woman, the disciples, and then the Samaritans. So as we continue on in this series, I would like to invite Marcus and Jody up to come and share their encounter with Jesus. We can clap because it's fun. And they're so excited to be clapped for too. And I'll stand awkwardly off to the side. Whoever goes first. I really thought there'd be a little bit more applause than that. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> uh, Hey, <laughs> so um, I think it's interesting that um, I guess our chance to share lined up with this encounter because I feel like most of the encounters that I have with Jesus uh, usually end up being either instructive or corrective, usually, usually corrective. And um, I guess... Uh, the latest one, or the, the one that stands out the most, has happened in Israel, and it has to do with our guide, a wonderful man named Daniel Lachinsky, something like that. So he's a, uh, he's a Messianic Jew, he's a Jew who believes in Jesus, and he was just, um, I can't say enough good about, about him as a guide and as a person. Um, but what I, what I wanted to share is, is kind of his um, manner and his, his love for uh, everyone in Israel. And so as we, um, let's see, how does this go? As, as we made our way from Galilee, which is up near the north, kind of down to the Dead Sea, you, you pass through um, the West Bank. And that has a lot of Palestinian areas and um, areas that are controlled um, by the Palestinians. And, and it's kind of interesting because there are Jews living there and they live in these sort of walled in, fenced in, barbed wire, um, areas, some of them, and, and they call it a settlement, a Jewish settlement in Israel. So that was very interesting to me that, that in their own land, they're, they're kind of like aliens in those, in those areas. 
And, um, and as we went a little further down, um, another area that was interesting is that, that um, the old city of Jerusalem, like David's city, is in an Arab neighborhood. And then, of course, you come to the old city of Jerusalem, and there you have the Jews worshiping at the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. And um, right on top of that is the Dome of the Rock, like the third most holiest site for the Muslims. And so this whole time there's this tension, I felt like, uh, between the Jews, the Palestinians, the, the Muslims, and, and yet David, or Daniel, sorry, Daniel, our guide, he just kind of exuded this love for everyone there, and, and not, uh, there was no sense of, that I got of, of resentment toward the Arabs or the Muslims or anyone who, any, anyone involved in that tension that seemed to be there. Another time, we had this discussion with a with a a, a rabbi. On, it was kind of cool. It was on the steps of the leading into the old steps that would have led up into the Temple Mount. And um, and after that man went away, we had this kind of I guess it was kind of an inner an exchange about um, Christianity. Judaism, there was kind of, he had kind of overheard some of our discussion, and, uh, and after he left, uh, you know, there was comments about, man, I wish he was, I wish he could be a believer, you know, and, and Daniel got, like, visibly emotional, just uh, thankful that, well, I think he said, like, how can I not be no longer blind, and this man is, you know, and, and he, and it was kind of the same way he felt that about uh, Palestinians and Muslims. And so I guess what that did for me is it kind of convicted me about not not hanging on to old grudges. Their grudges are some 5,000 years old, you know, and so to not hang on to those things that, that bother me uh, or things that have happened in the past um, I guess another thing that I really noticed was the there there's an obvious difference in the way the Jewish people live and the Arab people live. I mean, just to be honest, I mean, you go into uh, Jericho or someplace and it's just trash everywhere. I mean, and and then if you step, even you even see that in the old city, you walk through the kind of the Palestinian side has this kind of flea market feeling, and then you step in like across the street into the Jewish quarter, and it looks like Disneyland. And so I'm sure that that is always at play there in terms of, of you know, kind of a national pride or even racism. And, and so that, just the way that Daniel dealt with that and his love for everyone was a conviction to me, and um, I think, I hope corrective, so... Um, so, um, my encounter is, I'm going to bring it back to the USA, I guess. <laughs> um, so, my encounter was a couple of months ago, actually, when um, Renew had our baptisms here, and our daughter, Eva, 
<laughs> decided to get baptized. So that was very exciting for us. And I really wanted to do something special for her that day. Um, I knew that we would be having family come, um, her friends would be coming, and I wanted to have a lunch after the baptism. But we had this big complication, and that was that our nephew, who lives in Twain Heart, had gotten married, and um, he was having his wedding reception in Twain Heart that day at 5 o'clock. So I wasn't sure what to do. I was hoping that, you know, our family could come to the baptism and the reception, and but just unsure about it all. And so I have this uh, coping mechanism, <laughs> which is called procrastination. So I just kicked that can down the road and figured that I'd figure that out later. So camp came, and we were busy with summer, and... Um, Pretty soon, it's the day before the baptism, and I had by then formulated um, a plan, and um, we were going to have to leave at about 3.30 to go to the reception, but I thought, okay, I can clean my house, uh, clean my patio, um, do yard work, and make a lunch for 35 people today. No problem, right? <laughs> So, and I could, I mean, we could make it happen. So, um, we were outside doing yard work and our neighbor called Marcus and he said, hey, I have all these, I have some carnitas left over. Would you guys want them? So Marcus asked me and I thought, well, sure. I don't know what we're going to have for dinner tonight. So he showed up and um, he pulled up in his truck, and he opened his truck bed, and he had two huge foil pans, like this big, of carnitas. He had rice, beans, tortillas, everything for a meal for 35 people. So um, we didn't have it for dinner that night. We, uh, we had it the next day. But I, I can't say that I ever you know, prayed that the Lord would provide a meal or anything like that. But I just felt like the Lord just smiled on us and um, he saw me and what I was trying to do that day and was just very loving and gracious to me. So that's my encounter. Uh, Carnitas from heaven. It's great that Christ cares about everything. About the loss and about carnitas. So let's pray. God in heaven, thank you so much for this time that we have to worship you through your word and listening to testimonies of encounters with you, Lord. And Thank you that uh, you do not play favorites and that you love everyone and your desire is for everyone to come to know your Father through you, through your sacrifice. And, and um, we don't have to come from a good family or a bad family or in middle family that uh, we're really truly all on equal ground at the foot of the cross. Lord, thank you for uh, taking the time to talk to the Samaritan woman for her benefit, 
her, her faith in you for that village of all those Samaritan people, for the benefit of the disciples, and the benefit for us to see that uh, the way that you um, care so much for people that you don't avoid the sin, but you don't attack, that you're loving, that you're perfect. Thank you that we do have an encounter with you each and every day. You woke us up this morning. So Lord, will you make us more aware of you and your presence? And we're thankful as we get to worship you now through a few more songs. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.